Last week, I took the plunge, literally. I signed my seven-month-old daughter up for swim classes. Although I'm not sure you can really call them that, because there will be no formal instruction for the seven-month-olds. It's really a class for parents who care for infants, who are encouraged to bring their babies with them for a 45-minute water workout. In my mind, I can picture little Miriam in her adorable strawberry bathing suit, happily splashing away in her arms, in my arms, each Thursday morning. And then I can work on my arm muscles, which is good because she's getting a little heavy in her car seat. And I can stretch my new parent muscles, like the ones required to hold the infant who is trying to get free while getting up from the floor, um, keeping both hands on the baby. And of course, in my mind, I leave out the part where she develops a fear of water or refuses to go near the pool. That absolutely will not happen. Or where I have to buy a new bathing suit for this to work out. We all have our dreams. And one of the things that is most important to me about this class is that the way we will be learning about swimming will be as important as what we're learning about. You can't get into the pool and learn about swimming except by doing that. It's a learn by doing model. And more by more, I don't really have the patience I find for other kinds of education. If I can't dive in, then I'd rather sit out. So when I began my formal preparation for ministry, I wasn't surprised to learn that the field education requirement was part of Harvard Divinity School's curriculum. Actually, what surprised me was the classroom education requirement. Four classes a term for six terms were worked out to 24 classes in chairs and at desks and in a library. Plus two field ed requirements and a bridge class called meaning making intended to connect theory and practice, classroom and congregation. Still, my formal preparation for ministry could have put me in the library or at my computer for about 90% of the time. No open-air classrooms for me, unlike Mariah Baldwin. But how was I going to learn how to swim in the deep waters of spiritual formation, much less teach others to do so, if I spent 90% of my time on the shore? Luckily, there were a few professors at Harvard that felt the same way I did. One of them is named Marshall Gantz, and he teaches leadership and organizing classes at the Kennedy School, but they're cross-listed with the Divinity School. And he likes to start his classes by asking, how do you learn to ride a bike? Do you read about bicycles, their construction, or their history? How the handlebars are fixed, or where the tires are made? No, of course not. You get on the bike, and you ride. And in his, students, in his, in his classes, students are encouraged to get on the bike. We learn to swim by diving in. Marshall got his practical education by dropping out of Harvard to organize farm workers with Cesar Chavez. And page for page, he assigns just as much reading as other professors, but story for story, he listens a lot closer. So let me tell you a story about practical education, about one woman who learned, to, learned about what she wanted to do by just diving into the work. It was the summer of 1955, and a young black woman from Montgomery, Alabama, was sent by leaders of the NAACP to attend a series of workshops on desegregation efforts in the South. The workshops were held in Tennessee at a school called the Highlander Folk School, which had been founded by educator and activist Miles Horton. For years, this woman and her neighbors and her organization, the local chapter of the NAACP, 
had been working to fight segregation, but they had made little progress. After her week of practical education about organizing, where this woman shared meals with white and black leaders, where they made time for group singing and for walks around the beautiful grounds of the Highlander Folk School, she still felt discouraged. She didn't think that one person could make much of a difference, not in the cradle of the Confederacy. And she thought that white people wouldn't let black people do anything, and that black people weren't willing to stick together, and that nothing was going to change, not for a long time. But she was wrong. Because a few months after she got back to Montgomery, inspired by her experiences at Highlander and given a spark of courage by the truth she could already see happening there at that school, she took a stand for what she believed in, and I think you know her name. Her name was Rosa Parks. And I think you know the rest of the story. Although on that day in 1955, Rosa acted alone, she knew full well that for two years, black leaders had been looking for a way to challenge the bus laws because sometimes change is a lot slower than we want it to be. And she knew because of her time at Highlander that there would be consequences, obviously, for her actions, for challenging an unjust law. Her act of protest came after years of process and preparation. It was an act of individual courage, but it called forth, this is so important, it called forth acts of collective courage, and these became the civil rights movement. And now we're left with the question, how do you teach someone not to give up her seat on the bus, to launch a movement for social change that inspires us still, to work on behalf of freedom not just for herself, but for all people? And if you have these questions, I'm hoping some of them will be answered um, on Friday night, the Friday, January 29th, when we hear more about Rosa Parks' life story at the Simple Act of Courage presentation that will take place here. And tickets will be sold today. Does anyone here know tickets? Are you selling tickets? Raise your hands. Okay. Find these people. Learn more about Rosa Parks. In Rosa Parks' education, how she learned, it turns out, was just as important as what she was learning. And Miles Horton, who founded the Highlander Folk School, was the kind of person who lived that life, too. At its root, his school was a school where the way to learn reflected what the students were learning. So we shouldn't ask, what did Rosa learn at Highlander, but rather, how did she learn at Highlander? She later wrote of her experiences there that at Highlander, I found out for the first time in my adult life that this could be a unified society. That there was such a thing as people of different backgrounds and races meeting together in workshops and living together in peace and harmony. She learned how to work for a unified society by experiencing a taste of that society before it existed anywhere else. And so let me tell you about, more about how Miles Horton, how he learned to teach this way. He was born in Savannah, Tennessee on July 9th in 1905. Both of his parents were school teachers, but they also took on other jobs when they needed to, sharecropper, county clerk, farmer, and factory worker. And Miles worked too from a very young age. He tells stories about boxing tomatoes or hauling lumber in a sawmill. He worked with ordinary people facing extraordinary hardships. His grandfather never learned to read, but Miles' education was so important to his family that they moved to a town with a high school when he was 15 so he could continue his schooling. 
Eventually, he and his family and his church figured out a way for him to enroll in higher education, and he went from a small college in Tennessee to Union Theological Seminary in New York City in 1929. Now, I don't know if they had a field education requirement, but certainly that is what Miles took seriously about his time there. He was reading and talking and thinking and doing. He was in the library, but he was also in the streets, involved very vigorously in labor organizing. He was absolutely focused on how he could bring what he was learning in the classroom about social change and about people power back to his home in the South. But before he could go home, he went abroad, and in 1931, he went to Denmark to experience the Danish folk school movement, to learn how teachers in Denmark were on fire with commitment and passion to lead cooperative schools, where students were examining Norse mythology and Danish literature, singing and working and eating together as a way of learning for the long haul. When he got back to the US, Miles started raising money to start his own school in the South, and this was the school that became Highlander. He wrote, very simply, people learn about unity by acting in unison. They learn about democracy by acting democratically, and each time they act in democratic unity, they both strengthen their capacity for such action, and they demonstrate that the process of education keeps moving on. Miles knew that this place had to be based on shared meals and group singing. In fact, it was the activities and musicians of Highlander that brought a song from the picket line in Charleston, South Carolina into the civil rights movement, a song they titled, We Shall Overcome. Although it wasn't religious, the school he built was founded on his faith in people and his love for his neighbors. So today, when I think about the lessons and the legacy of Martin Luther King and Miles Horton and education that keeps on going in the long haul, I think about how we here at First Parish are learning to sing together, as we have this morning. And I hear, I think about the laughter I've heard when First Parish shares a meal together or a song, as we did earlier today. And when I once again pull my chair into the circle for a film screening or a meeting or a leadership workshop, as I did on Wednesday night, I think of how we, here together, can continue to shape our life together in ways that build the kind of learning that Miles dreamed of. It's a kind of learning that asks us to call on the wisdom of our life experiences. It demands that we gather with purpose and solve fundamental human problems. And long-haul learning invites us into a changed future. The signs of that future are arriving fast now as we continue the search for a new associate minister, as we reclaim teachers in our history like Mariah Baldwin, who was a Unitarian. As we, but our work is always to raise the stakes and to make every part of our life here reflect our goals and our values. Like the bumper sticker says, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. How is as important as what? Miles lived in a time when there were very high stakes for this kind of thinking, for this kind of education, for action, formation, and transformation. But he did not believe in small goals or easy wins. His life was threatened more than once, and his friends were killed for their attempts to, to organize unions and desegregate the South. Still, when a person or an organization would come to Highlander with a small dream or a small goal, he would tell them, this is not the place for you. Because their thinking was too limited. He would tell them, don't tell me what you've done on your own. 
tell me what you've done with others. And Martin Luther King, of course, is an iconic figure in our history for someone who worked with others, who inspired a nation to work together. And our hymn today, Precious Lord, is said to be his favorite. Over a life of struggle and triumph, he reached out countless times to God for comfort and strength. And I may not share his theology, but I share his conviction that there are so many times in our lives when we cannot go it alone. The time when standing alone, fighting alone, struggling alone is not the way forward. In the storm, in the night, we must reach out beyond ourselves, take hold of one another, and hold on tight. I remember talking about leadership in Marshall Gantz's class at the Kennedy School, the one where we had to just get on that bike and ride. But what happens the first time you get on the bike and ride? Is that a very long bike ride? No. It's a very embarrassing bike ride. So you fall right off the bike, and that's what happens when we gather our courage and when we work so hard for change. And here's an example of what I mean. A few weeks after I graduated from college, I was traveling with my singing group through China. It was a fantastic trip, and we'd worked very hard to raise enough money to be there. But when we got to Beijing, we were trying to buy train tickets for an overnight train that would take us to Shanghai. And one of our hosts decided that he was not going to pay us for our work. When he backed out of this deal, I was furious. Without the deal, we couldn't figure out what we were going to do to get to Shanghai. I felt disrespected and mistreated by the bait and switch, and I was very afraid of the consequences we faced. As a leader of this group, what was I going to do to help us get the cash we needed? But my anger and my fear gave me strength, too. So I fought back, and I negotiated a better deal. I gathered my courage and confronted our host. And at the end of the day, we had the cash we needed to continue our trip. So full of pride at my leadership and my direct action, I went to Marshall and I said, this is my story. This is how I stood up for people who needed my help. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, where were the other women in your group? He said, if one woman acting alone could succeed the way you did and learn so much about leadership from the experience, what could you have done with 10 more women? all committed to standing up to power in the same way. My spiritual friends, are you standing alone right now? Who around you could stand with you? Will you ask them? Will you let your individual courage fan the flames of collective courage? Because the truth is, it didn't even occur to me to ask for help. I missed that chance. I missed the chance to reach out my hand and have someone else hold on to give me strength. Now I do wonder what we could have done and learned together if we had stood together. If my individual courage had become collective courage. So often I have felt empowered and encouraged to focus on my learning or my needs or my goals. I've been inspired to go it alone. But in the long haul, these kinds of personal change can, they could, they must have a life beyond the personal. They can be sources of strength. They can create change well outside these walls. And the way that we will make this connection will reflect the goals we struggle for. We learn about unity by acting in unison. We learn about democracy by acting democratically. We learn about right relations by treating one another better. And we learn about circles of learning by pulling up our chair and joining in. 
Jump into the pool, my friends. Whether you've had lessons or not, we will keep one another afloat as we all learn how to swim. Miles Horton taught that our teaching and our learning will never be done, but by practicing process and catching collective courage over the long haul, we will be formed and we will be transformed. May it be so, my spiritual friends. May it be so.